Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Kelly Paxton and Brian Willingham, two private investigators who work in the world of fraud, embezzlement, and other white-collar crimes. Kelly is in Oregon and is known as the pink-collar crime expert who hosts a podcast, Great Women in Fraud. Brian is the founder of the Diligentia Group in New York and has been voted the best private investigator in the galaxy. Both Kelly and Brian are certified fraud examiners, private investigators, professional speakers, and social media influencers. So coming up, the investigators, Kelly Paxton and Brian Willingham on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. We have a very special uh, show today. This is called The Investigators. Uh, that's the name of uh, today's episode. And we have Kelly Paxton and Brian Willingham, and they are private investigators. Uh, a little underappreciated corner of uh, the white collar justice world, but integral to um, what lawyers do and what people who want to find out important information about the people that they do business with uh, turn to them, um, among other things that we're going to find out about. Just let me give you a little bit of background. Uh, Kelly uh, came to my attention because uh, she has a podcast and she's known as the uh, pink collar crime expert. Um, and uh, pink collar is a, a, an even a smaller subset of the white collar uh, world, but uh, there are a, a lot of uh, female white collar criminals out there and white collar prosecutions. Um, she's also called the workplace dishonesty expert. And um, uh, Unfortunately, I know a lot of people who have been dishonest in the workplace. So we'll talk about that too. Um, um, and Brian Willingham, how do you pronounce it? Diligentia? Dil- That's about as close as I've heard anybody. Diligentia, yep. Diligentia. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if it was Sha or Tia, but diligent, Diligentia. Um, and he lives pretty close to me, actually. He lives in, uh, in uh, Westchester County, uh, just outside New York City. And uh, I'm not far from there in Litchfield County. Um, what, um, and Brian is known as, this is unbelievable. I love this. The, uh, he was voted the best private investigator in the galaxy. So true true story. So that's fantastic. We're going to hear about that. And they're both certified fraud experts, um, private investigators, um, professional speakers. Um, if you follow, uh, LinkedIn in this sector at all, they're on LinkedIn every single day. And uh, which is where I get most of my information about the private investigation side of things. So why don't we start off by uh, having you uh, each introduce yourselves and then we'll just get into some conversation about it. Um, Why don't we start with, uh, first of all, Kelly and Brian, welcome to White Collar Week. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, why don't you start by introducing yourself and then we'll go to Brian. Sure. So the long story short is I started with a very um, typical career in finance. And uh, I've 
went, worked at the Chicago Board of Trade, became a stockbroker, came back to Oregon. And we had a client who I'm going to say was hinky. And I knew something was not right with him. But this was back before KYC, Know Your Customer. One day we got a phone call from a special agent from U.S. Customs saying, do you know Alan? And this is all public record, so I'm not, you know, divulging mm-hmm. state secrets. Um, and I kind of giggled. I was young at that time. I was in my 20s. And I kind of giggled and I said, oh, is that what you're calling him today? Because we had other names for him that he would go by. And fast forward a year later, I called her up and I said, I want to do what you do. And a year past that, I became a special agent for U.S. Customs and because they liked my financial background. My career is kind of about money. And um, the first career is how to invest it, how to save it and how to invest it. The second career is why do people steal it and what they do with it? And the third sort of career where I'm at now is a certified fraud examiner and um, private investigator and the pink collar crime lady is why do honest people steal? And so I went from arresting bad guys at U.S. Custom, money launderers, drug dealers, child pedophiles, to working in a local sheriff's office and realizing that in embezzlement cases, you know, money being stolen from a business, it wasn't Bernie Madoff. It was that nice woman who dropped her kids off in the minivan at school in the morning. And that's where kind of crime changed for me. We have this perception that it's bad guys and you cross the street and they're lurking in corners when really you're more likely to be affected by, as we call it, sweet crime, S-U-I-T-E, versus street crime. You're much more likely to be a victim of sweet crime. And so now in kind of my third act is I specialize in embezzlement, but I also work with victims to help them understand how honest people steal and how to prevent and detect and investigate embezzlement. Long story short, but it's kind of long. Thanks, Kelly. That, that, that was actually perfect. It worked out great. Um, Brian, maybe you could introduce yourself and then uh, we'll get into some of the guts of this. Sure. So first, I think I need to describe a story about why I've been voted the best president, the best private investigator in the galaxy. And this, you'll appreciate this, Jeff. Uh, in Danbury, Connecticut, there's a pizza place called Stanziato's, which was started by a guy who um, was worked at the, or who got trained at the Culinary Institute of America, was his, you know, trained chef and opened mm-hmm. up a pizza place. And it's this amazing pizza. And they used to have a sign outside that said best p- pizza in the galaxy or something silly like that. So I just sort of stole their moniker and started using it all over the place. And people now, people started addressing me that way. So that was pretty, pretty funny. Um, so I don't take myself too seriously if you haven't figured that out. Um, but the, the, my story is a bit longer than Kelly's. Uh, I had never in- any intention of becoming a private investigator in part because my father was a private investigator. Um, and it wasn't a field that was really all that particularly interesting to me, despite the fact that when I was in middle school, I took an aptitude test that said that I should either be an air traffic controller or a, um, private investigator. Uh, I never wound up doing either pursuing either of those for many years because I was infatuated with sports. I wanted to first be a player on the New York Mets. And once I realized that I wasn't good enough to play on the New York Mets, I wanted to become the general manager or the president of the New York Mets. Um, so I ultimately, I worked in the sports industry for several years, actually, uh, for a sports photography firm. I worked for Major League Baseball. Uh, I worked for the New York Giants, did an internship there. And I got my degree in, in from the University of Massachusetts in sport management. 
which is a very business focused degree, sure. but has uh, sports involved with it, business, uh, sports law, sports marketing. It's become a sort of very specialized um, practice. Uh, so when I graduated, that's what I thought I wanted to do. Until sort of getting into the field and kind of feeling things out, I realized that there was thousands of people like me who wanted to be in this business who would work for almost nothing and never left the industry. Um, so when I was, for example, when I was working with the New York Giants, um, the people that were, everybody that was ahead of me had been there for many years. And in fact, the guy that was the, that I reported to is still there after 20 something years and is a fantastic person and should <laughs> very well be there. But it was just, a, it was tough for me to, for somebody who was, I was very passionate about working really hard and mm -hmm. working my way towards the top. And it was just an industry which I didn't feel like those sort of, that skill set was all that useful, <laughs> frankly. Um, frankly, I probably should have stuck with it, but um, the long and short is I ended up working with my father's investigative firm. Uh, he was, he's been a licensed investigator since the 1980s. I started working with his firm uh, 20 years ago, actually this, uh, this year, uh, this March, this month, actually. Um, and when I started with him, it was really meant to be a temporary thing. I wanted to you know, make a little bit of money. I was still young. I was thinking about getting my MBA. Um, and ultimately 9-11 happened six months later, 9-11 happened. Uh, and like everybody, we, he was tremendously affected. He had a client that, you know, uh, owed him several, uh, a million dollars and, and it wound up being very hard to lay people off and it was very mm. difficult business time. Um, so I wound up, I couldn't leave him at the time. I wound up staying and, you know, over time I've just developed this extraordinary passion for the work, the job. Uh, and 20 years later, uh, here I am. So it's about uh, 12 years ago, I started my own firm, um, and I've been working on my own ever since then. And, and one other quick thing is an entree vous into white collar crime. Um, you know, my interest in this field has been multiple fold. One is when I was growing up in the business, um, we, we were coming of an age where fund to fund investing was very, um, was hugely popular in the 2000s, early 2000s. Hedge funds were popping up left and right. Uh, and there were these companies that would invest in multiple hedge funds. Sure. And as part of that, they would do due diligence. They want to make sure that whoever they were investing in was legitimate. Um, so we were doing work for some of the real big hedge, hedge funds and fund of funds. Uh, so I became very enmeshed in that world. And there were sub a couple of really big blowups at the time, and some that I actually worked on, including uh, the Bayou Capital, which is Sam Israel, which is in Westchester County. He lived in Armonk. Uh, it was a very infamous story. He wound up um, faking his own death. It was just this fascinating story that I got really intrigued with. Sure. So we were kind of in that little world. Um, and I've done a couple of work, uh, some work on a couple other sort of Ponzi schemers and, and white collar cr criminals. And I've also worked on some of the defense side for, for some of this stuff too. So that's sort of been my um, history getting going back in time there. So I've got a, I've got a little thing to add to you, Brian, sure. is SPACs. You're going to be doing SPAC work. SPAC work's just going to be coming out of the walls. So the special purpose acquiring companies, they just took a 20% hit. So get ready for SPACs. It's, it's hysterical you mentioned that because we, I was doing SPAC work 
15 years ago. Uh, so these were not a thing back then. And we were doing SPAC work years ago. And now it's sort of become a much bigger deal. But yeah, you're totally right. There's going to be right. all kinds of fallout from that. You don't think there, there's a problem inherent in giving people money for blank checks to spend it any way they want without any accountability? You don't, you don't think there's a problem with that? I see no problem whatsoever. No, probably not. Uh, so, Br Brian, uh, the irony probably isn't lost on you that you wanted to work for the Mets and then Steve Cohen goes and buys the Mets. And, of course, he's not a white-collar criminal, but… no. He was certainly uh, embroiled in that for a lot of years, and there's a bunch of his people who uh, who went down. So uh, yeah, that so there's obviously been you know a lot of things in, out there in the public about that you know insider trading sort of allegations and mm -hmm. things along those lines. But uh, and the Mets themselves had a problem too. They hired a <laughs> general manager who had a, a bit of a history, and some news came out that the you know the, that they were. Uh, not obviously very happy about, uh, and they had to fire the guy because of some unreported things. So in that particular case, I actually don't think it was all that much their fault, um, as much as I'd like to blame things on Mets doing horrible things. And I think the Mets have been cursed for many, many years, but uh, this one, I don't know if it was their fault. So so I, I think there's a lot of ways to cut up this subject because, it, because it's the same for what I do. There's like the before the during and the after, which is a way to cut it up. Um, the other ways to cut it up, I think, are the way that Kelly started off with was um, uh, that you really can't tell who is committing a white-collar crime. And it could be the, the lady down the street. It's, or it could be someone who you least expect. Um, and yet we're drawn to the big names, the sensationalized journalistic names. And then what we tend to do is paint everyone with that broad brush. Um, so wh why don't we start there? Because, um, Kelly, what I've contended for a lot of time is that you really can't judge the, a group of people at all. Everyone's an individual and they all have their own motivations. There are some things in common. So what do you find out there in, in terms of the, the people down the street or the people who uh, are good people who've done something wrong or maybe um, you wouldn't think we're likely to commit a white-collar crime, but then, of course, you're in the midst of finding out that they have. You know, I the whole um, hashtag honest people steal, I... Especially now with COVID and, you know, people are sick of hearing about COVID, but we have financial pressures, which is the fraud triangle. You have opportunity pressure and rationalization. And we've always said that you, it's easiest to control for opportunity. Now, rationalization, if you have a bad boss, it's easier to steal from a bad boss than a nice boss. But, but now we have COVID and you have industries that have been hit by COVID that you would never expect. To be hit by COVID, mm. for example, and no offense to orthopedic surgeons out there in Oregon, um, elective surgeries were canceled for a couple of months. And can you imagine being a surgeon who's making a million dollars a year, who's got, you know, a, I'm going to say a big nut to cover and all of a sudden, you know, maybe they have alimony or kids in private school and they can't do surgeries. And so what do they do? Maybe they go out and do a PPP loan. And they, you know, 
fudge the numbers or they do the numbers as if they were going to continue to have that, you know, income. Mm -hmm. So I I hate to say money is the root of all evil because I don't believe that. I think that, you know, rich people can do really, really good things. Poor people can do really good things. But people see money as the Band-Aid. It's the instant Band-Aid. And I... That's the short-term thinking. Long-term thinking is, you know, maybe you need to learn with, to live within your budget or, you know, so, but people instantly go to money to solve a problem. You know, when, when I'm asked by students, what's the, what's the greatest lesson I've learned from all of this? Usually my answer is I've learned to live within my means. So, and it's, it's so interesting that you kind of let off with that because it, it feels like this upward mobility pressure is there and, and then it's spend, spend, spend. You have to have the bigger house. You have to, and all of a sudden the, the nut grows so large that it has to be maintained. And, um, I've been involved in, uh, enough healthcare fraud, uh, cases, for example. When, when I was a lawyer, uh, um, I represented surgeons and, and, um, just the, the, uh, the, the, um, opportunity to code things differently and bundle things differently it's just it's right there in front of in front of everybody uh what's your experience in people being just kind of pushed over that line is it is it that they understand the ethics of it but that once they go over the line it's much easier to do again and again and again well so i've done this work with a forensic psychologist and um brian you know jump in on this is when I get an interview with a suspect, I am always going to ask them, tell me about the first time because they remember the first time Mm. it is just burned in their brain. Now we're going to exclude serial grifters and narcissists and psychopaths, but the average, you know, Joe blow, Sally, whatever um, you ask them about that first time. So Brian, what's the name of the first girl you kissed? I have no idea. I'm not revealing it in this podcast here. <laughs> okay, but in your mind, you probably could remember the name of the first girl you kissed, but the 10th girl, it's like that was stealing money. You remember the first time, but then it all becomes a blur. Have, have you experienced that? Not kissing girls. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah, I, listen, I think, you know, one of the things that I, from my own personal experience, um, is that I think it's something that exactly that you guys are talking about is that this sort of constant life pressures to sort of feed the beast. And, and the reality is, is that there's, there's never enough money. I, I live in a very, I make a very good living. I have a very good life and I have a very good sense of morals and ethics and those kind of things as well. I wouldn't even consider like fudging my numbers to collect some PPP money. But I think that's a regular thought process that most people probably have. Like, nobody's going to catch me. Why couldn't I do it? I have very good close friends who live in, uh, you know, we live in Westchester County, which is probably one of the top few richest counties in, in all of uh, America, uh, aside for <laughs> from where in the Greenwich area, but um, Fairfield County. Um, and I have people that are extraordinarily close to me that do sort of shady things all the time, whether it's like get, you know, accidentally forget to return a ten, twenty thousand dollar check that somebody sent them, uh, or there might be fudging how many employees that they work with. I think there's this constant sort of pressure. And I think, you know, because money is this such a 
taboo topic. Um, I think most people don't really talk about it. They don't know that, you know, so-and-so who's driving around in Mercedes is really up to his eyeballs in debt. And all they see is this, you know, this how successful people are. But what they don't see is behind the scenes. They don't see that these people um, are really struggling and probably living way above their means. And I think people make excuses for it. Uh, and, and they start doing things that, that, that they don't, wouldn't necessarily do. And, you know, I'm a very much a believer in, you know, there's no shortcuts to any of this stuff. There's no shortcuts to life. There's no shortcuts to business. There's no shortcuts to any. I mean, once in a while, you might hit the lottery and marry the right person or actually physically hit the lottery or something may come into your life that may change everything. But it's, it's rare. And I think there's this sort of um, Disney version that people want to live, live or think that might happen, but it, it's not really the reality of how it happens. Um, so I think that's how a lot of it happens. And I think, you know, we've talked about this before with, I think with both of you, um, I think there's so much white collar crime in our day-to-day -day lives everywhere from the local towns to the, you know, local uh, booster club um, to everywhere. And I think it's everywhere. And, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about it is that you know, you can almost um, understand people who commit crimes that are, come from absolutely nothing. It's almost understandable. When people commit white collar crime, it's 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 much harder for me to understand. And I'm not a, a, a forensic psychologist or somebody who has studied this for that many years. It it it's less understandable to me. And for me, if I could catch every one of these people and stick them in jail, I would be thrilled about it. Um, let's, Kelly, let's go back to the, uh, the triangle, because I think, I feel like if we start, if, if we go here into some of the science, um, that, that, uh, the, our conversation can kind of, uh, go out into stories. Um, but I, I, I love that, that, that triangle of opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. Um. Uh, two or three days ago, there was an article in the Australian Financial Review by a professor in Australia named Clifton Leaf. And he wrote about that. Um, and actually, I think that tomorrow there's a, there's a big conference down there um, in Australia. But what he wrote about was that uh, how white-collar criminals sleep easy at night. That was the title. And I wrote to him and I said, you know, I, I know a lot of white collar criminals and I don't know any that sleep easy at night. In fact, they've entered a world where they're, they're, they're terrified. They're spending their whole lives looking over their shoulders. And the last thing that they can do is sleep easy at night. And in fact, um, many, including me, by the way, manufacture their own uh, demise. They self-sabotage because they just need it to end. And, um, and they don't have the tools to elegantly just move to the next stage or to be able to say, I, I messed up and I need to pay those consequences and then move forward in my life. So what do you, what do you think about all that? Well, they might sleep well at night because they take Ambien and they have, you know, thousand spreadsheets. <laughs> so, um, you know, in, in my circumstances, or, you know, in my work experience, I, 
I haven't dealt with the Bernie Madoffs, but, you know, I've dealt with some fraudsters that have committed some, you know, pretty hefty um, embezzlements and Ponzi schemes and things like that. I think most of them, again, except for the narcissists, because they're a whole different brand, they know they're going to get caught. And, um, and it makes them physically sick. So like, I mean, I know your background, you have, you know, you went through addiction and addiction probably at the time helped you sleep at night. Um, but when you've seen this and Brian, tell me if you've seen this is when you get someone and they, you interview them, you see the physical relief in their body, their shoulders dropping, the head dropping. They're like, I mean, can you imagine working for a company or a boss and every time the boss is like, hey, can you come in my office for a second and you're stealing from that boss? What happens to your body physically? Mm. And so when the gig is up, and in my case, you know, I do, I, my practice is I've had more women embezzlers than men. I say women embezzle better than men, but men steal more, um, is that they all think they're going to get caught eventually. And just that the... So, yeah, I, I don't think they sleep very well at night. I think a lot of them have drugs and drug and alcohol issues. And, um, you know, it's just easier to have three glasses of wine instead of one glass of wine to get to sleep. So I don't know. What do you think about that, Brian? Have you I, seen the physical? It's really interesting. See, I don't get involved too much in, in sort of the in-between. I'm usually a before or after. I'm usually on the, either on the defense team or I'm the guy who's like, hey, can you dig into these guys and let me know if you think that there might be something here? Um, so I don't see that sort of middle part where you're trying to basically, you know, capture them, punish them or figure out what, what is going on. Um, you know, physically and psychologically, I, I mean, I can't sleep at night uh, and I, I, I live about as ethical a life as I possibly can. So I don't know, you know, obviously there's this whole psychological part that, that, you know, I have zero expertise in that I'm not even going to speak to, but I can't imagine how these people <laughs> would sleep at night. Uh, listen, I think for the most part, from my own experience, I don't think most of these people, most people don't go into something saying, I'm going to be a white collar criminal. I think they usually get themselves involved in something in some sort of mess some sort of trouble they needed some something for some short period of time and they're trying to cover up a mistake and they usually say well that wasn't that hard and i'm just going to do it again and again and again and i think that's generally what happens so you know there's certainly a time period where they might sleep okay at night um but obviously as time goes on that that can't that can't be easy why, why don't we talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts? I mean, what is it to actually be a private investigator or do financial investigations? And what, 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 are, the, what are the skills that, that you actually have to go through? Let's say, you're, let's say there's a, someone's presenting you with a, uh, um, say, a, a, a private equity firm or hedge fund wants to look into someone because they want to make an investment or typically they want to invest other people's money. Yep. So everyone in the chain is somehow a fiduciary of, for someone else. I mean, there's the, the Bernie Madoff uh, um, a scenario sure. where, where there were funds, investing in funds who were investing in funds. So that now you're hired and you're looking at principals who are who have a, um, 
product or, a, or some kind of financial product or, 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 or a company, what, what, what are the nuts and bolts of what you do in order to ferret out whether or not they're doing the right thing or not? Sure. So, you know, there's, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, we get contacted by either individual investors who are making some sort of investment in something or something, somebody or someone, whether it's a company or an individual. Um, it could be a private equity firm. Uh, it could be a venture capital firm. It could just be, uh, you know, a family office that is investing on behalf of somebody. And when you're wealthy, you get introduced to a lot of people and somebody's always got a brilliant idea of something to invest in. And there's a lot of people out there that are obviously trying to take advantage of these people. I don't think there's one way or another that you can. And, and sometimes it's, you know, not necessarily take advantage of them. They want their money, but they, you know, they might think they have some brilliant idea, but it's terrible. So, you know, they'll come to us and they'll say, hey, we want to do some sort of background investigation on this person. Make sure this person is who they say they are, whether or not they have some serious thing in their past that we need to worry about or whether or not there's some red flags that we should be concerned about. So on the very, you know, basic level, you know, I want to make sure that uh, Kelly Paxson is Kelly Paxson, that she's a real person, that she really lives in Oregon, that, you know, she has this background, she really is a CFA, she has whatever the case may be. So on a ba very basic level, you know, sort of confirming the identity of somebody. The second sort of level would be, you know, making sure they don't have a history. Uh, whether that be some serious criminal history um, and, you know, fraud, embezzlement or uh, multiple DWIs or whatever the case may be, any sort of significant criminal history where they serve jail time, the proverbial axe murder is what you're always looking for. I still have not found an axe murder, uh, but I'm still looking. Um, and then, you know, the other things, the sort of the second step from there is sort of all the other stuff. And when I say all the other stuff, we're looking at public records, we're looking at open source intelligence, like social media, how they're living. Uh, so the public records would be, we're checking uh, civil lawsuits to determine whether or not they've been in part of any um, personal injury claims, whether they've been involved in a number of lawsuits, whether they've been defended in many lawsuits, whether investors are coming after them. Um, we're also looking at things like bankruptcies and judgments and liens to determine, you know, how are they living? Do they, are they really in desperation of money? Have they filed bankruptcy multiple times in their past, which would suggest that they're not very good with money? Are people coming after them for money? Do they owe the federal government millions of dollars? Uh, and so on and so forth. We're also trying to determine, you know, from they are who they say they are, whether or not, you know, they really did go to Harvard. Uh, <laughs> they really did serve in the military. Um, and whether or not they really did work for Goldman Sachs. So we're checking sort of regulatory uh, things that we can check, uh, as well as trying to, you know, make sure that from a CV perspective, whether or not they are who they say they are. So a lot of, you know, in, in my world, in the investment world, a lot of people like to make these bold claims about, you know, they worked for Steve Cohen, or they worked at Goldman Sachs, or they went to Harvard. Um, and sometimes they're just simply not true. And then obviously, you know, as time has gone on, um, you know, one of the biggest things has become social media. How do they portray themselves out there on social media? So one of the fascinating things about social media is, is that anybody can put anything on social media and it's generally unverifiable. So some guy might walk up to a Bentley and take a picture with a Bentley and take a picture with a whatever car or so have some fake background that they're, you know, traveling all over the world or whatever the case may be. 
So social media has become a way for people to sort of portray somebody that they may not necessarily be. So, you know, when you combine all of these factors, we can put together a pretty good picture of who somebody is um, based on a lot of public records, open sources. And, you know, what the, one of the really great benefits of what we do is that nobody ever knows that we're ever doing it. We're not, you know, we're not um, calling people, we're not, you know, surveilling them. There's so much information just readily available on the internet that nobody will ever know. And in fact, just recently, I got a call from a client um, on the West Coast. Uh, they were about to meet somebody, uh, a young kid who was in his early 20s, who wanted to put, um, who was about to pay cash for a $10 million house. And the, the, the kid came under sort of these mysterious circumstances. He was sort of keeping everything quiet, uh, had a letter from a bank uh, that said that he had $50 million in the bank. And the client gave me about two hours to dig up whatever I could. And very quickly, we were, you know, just from on its face, I called the client back within two hours and they said, there's one of two things. One is, this is a complete fraud. <laughs> or number two, you have to seriously question where, wherever this money, if it is real, where it's coming from. And, you know, I wouldn't be counting on the deal happening. The kid had a very extensive background, including things all over social media. Um, so, you know, there's so much information available about people that, that, you know, that can give you a pretty good sense or an idea about character issues and things that would be a warning flag to anybody who's investing money, whether it be um, issues of, you know, whether they are living beyond their means, whether, um, you know, there's certain character issues that come up in, you know, criminal cases or civil litigation. Um, or whether, you know, you know, there's, there's other red flags that, you know, to be determined sort of thing. So there, there's, there's so much stuff that we can identify and that we can provide to a client um, in these cases. Kelly, what do you think about that? Well, so um, this is like a small, small world. When I became a custom special agent, they have to interview, you know, where you've lived and things like that. Well, it turns out I had worked for my dad. And because I had worked for my dad, they had to interview him. Normally, they don't interview a family member. So at this point, my dad had been very successful, and then he had lost everything. And he gets a knock on the door at eight in the morning. He opens the door probably in a bad bathrobe. And there's an ex FBI agent who it turns out that my dad used to play liars poker with at the local bar when my dad was a commodities trader. And my dad calls me up. This would be four cell phones, calls me up and he's like, ha, guess who just came and talked to me about your background? And I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, oh, it's that FBI agent. I used to win liars poker every Friday. And I'm like, I'm done, dad. I'm done. You, I'm, but the point being is my dad said I was always I like to say it was curious, but he was like, she's just Snoopy. And that's what we are. We are Snoopy. When something doesn't make sense, like there was just a, a Ponzi scheme in your neck of the woods. It was like $1.8 billion. There's a guy in front of, I think it was his Lambo, you know, Lamborghini for the ones who don't know, but his Lambo. There's pictures of him going to Disneyland. And I have a thing about Disneyland. And um, so I have a new stockbroker because my stockbroker retired. So he has a team and now I have a new stockbroker. I immediately send the article with the picture of the guy with the Lambo and I send it to her and I'm like, 
just want to check to see what kind of car you drive. <laughs> and she writes back and she goes, we have like a Ford F-150 because we have two Great Danes and the crates will only fit in that. And I was like, okay. So it's like, you know, that's kind of funny. Like uh, I didn't expect her to say she drives a Lamborghini, but like the previous broker that I had, he always drove trucks because he was like kind of a hobby farmer. Mm -hmm. So I, I personally, I don't want my stockbroker driving a, you know, a $350,000 car. <laughs> I just don't because their nut is huge. So it's just kind of like that. It's putting a puzzle together. And sometimes the puzzle is a square puzzle. Sometimes it's a rectangular puzzle. And now, you know, you've got crazy round puzzles, but we have to put those pieces together and see, make sure we have all the pieces as best we can. Mm -hmm. Well, I know from experience, but it feels to me like you're often either are or should be part of a, of a team. So there are lawyers involved, maybe there are forensic accountants involved, and there's some science to this, there's some art. I mean, for example, I, I, have, uh, I have friends who are forensic accountants, and if they have a complete set of source data to operate from, then they have programs in which they can find uh, trends. They can they can isolate um, ways in which uh, um, money is moved from account to account, and it's not it's it's not like people might picture in their mind sitting there with crates of boxes going through going through them one at a time um, like in a movie. Um, they can they, they they can use algorithms to pretty quickly get to get to the patterns that they need in order to do a deeper dive. So you're looking at, um, at social media, what kind of tools do you use and how deep can you get using, um, using technology? So we can get pretty deep. I mean, there's, I mean, one, one of the sort of sneaky little things that, that I like to talk about is that usually People who are committing some cyber sort of fraud or who are on the edge of committing some sort of fraud or who are just very careful about what they do. You either have one or two people. You're either out there posing with your Lambo and your fancy houses and your fancy cars, or you're generally very cautious, cautious about these kind of things. And you're, you're normally not in the middle. So one of the sneaky things that we do is that we like to look at all the people around them to really figure out what their story is. So you can even even without somebody posting everything on social media, you can really get a pretty good sense about people um, through that way. So listen, there's 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 tons of software available to us uh, that helps sort of weave weave a story uh, and put together some of the stories. Not, not everybody is on social media. Everybody has a different sort of take on it. I try to protect my social media as much as possible. I'm doing my own sort of um, due diligence on myself. I'm about to teach a course next week and I'm doing a due diligence on myself. And I'm surprised how much information is out there on me. And some of the techniques that, <laughs> that I'm teaching other people, you know, if you really wanted to find out a lot about me, you could. Um, and, and some of the ways is through sort of digging through your family members and those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So there's still plenty of information and, and from social media is only one of the sources that we obviously use, but public records is a huge part of it. And mm -hmm. no matter what you do, your public record trail from the point that you're born to the time that you die is, is pretty extensive. 
the, you know, the documents and things that you were talking about before, like the internal financial documents and those kind of things, you know, those aren't readily available to me. I'm not breaking into anybody's safe or into somebody's house or cracking into their computer and identifying that. Um, you know, Bernie Madoff was able to pull off a Ponzi scheme for 20 plus years by keeping that stuff pretty tight to the vest and the people that control that information, you know, very well paid and, and obviously quiet. Um, so, you know, we're obviously, you know, there are certain pieces of the puzzle you can put together. You can't always put the whole case together. Um, but there's always something that you can put together. And I'll give you an example. Recently, we were doing some work. Um, on behalf of um, a, a law firm uh, in the Midwest, they had invested with somebody who was out on the West Coast, and it sort of uh, absconded. Well, absconded is not the right word because it's not even a litigation, but there's some millions of dollars that's sort of missing at this point. <laughs> um, and what we we did some background on the kid, on the person, and what we were trying to do is trying to identify if anything in his history that would suggest that he's trying to pull the wool over there, these investors' eyes, and you know, trying to pull a scam here. And there really wasn't, and we we couldn't really find anything that suggested um, he was a little. The person was a little bit of an embellisher, uh, which certainly raises some red flags. Um, I heard a really funny quote today that. Uh, the truth is not always the best story. So people like to sort of make things up. Um, so, um, you know, he had a little bit of embellishing in his background. But one of the things we found is um, we were doing, as part of our research, we were, they were about to sue this person for several million dollars. And they wanted to get a sense of whether or not he had several million dollars. And when we were doing our research, we found that he was, this person was living in this house and the house was owned by a trust, and the trust happened to be ABCD trust. It wasn't ABCD because I can't even remember what it was. But I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And getting behind a trust is is pretty challenging because there's not really, you know, the, the lawyers will know about it. But you know, we looked at who signed on behalf of the trust, but we really couldn't pin anything down. Sure. And as we were doing our research we were able to sort of start connecting dots and realize that ABCD, whoever, whatever the acronym was, was actually the name of the, the, the guy, his dog, his daughter, and his wife. Um, and we were able to determine that the attorney uh, was somebody that he had done work, he had signed some corporate documents with. So now we had this $6 million house that he had literally just put on the market in the last couple of weeks that he was about to sell and possibly take all the proceeds from <laughs> and go to Belize or wherever he was going. So that was a you know sort of important piece of intelligence for us. So the the point of that story is that there's you, you're not always looking in one place to say all right this guy is um, there's something wrong because of this. It's usually the the entire story that when you once you put it together uh, kind of gives a overall overview of everything. So uh, Kelly uh, Brian, do you have um, do you put together reports? And is there a scaling system, for example? So uh, do, do people get a, anywhere from an A to an F or a hundred to a zero? Um, and, and what about like source documents themselves? Yeah. So, and, 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 ju and he here's kind of where one, I want the answer to that if you could give it to me. But also, it seems to me that different clients are going to have like different things that will touch them off. I mean, an example is I know a guy who uh, went to prison for a couple of years and he's out now and he's doing whatever he's doing. And 
he loves to take pictures of himself on social media showing like $40,000 watches that he's wearing. Now, it's just me formerly having a life where I had a couple of nice watches, but I wouldn't do business with anyone who's showing a $40,000 watch on social media. It's as simple as that. I don't want, I don't need to know more than that, but that's just me. So the people, you, when you work with people, do they, you kind of get to know what their touch points are and what does your report look like and source documents. So we do create a report and we draft a report. Um, we don't have a scoring system. It's something that I've thought about for many, many years, uh, but it's not something we've ever done. Source documents is always something that I will provide. Um, all of this stuff is, you know, most of this stuff is public record or open source, or, you know, I can print it out from the web or I've got it from a court document or secretary of state or wherever, and I will include these source documents. Um, but you are 100% accurate uh, in your sort of, you know, what you, what you just said about, you know, you would never work with somebody who had a $40,000 watch. I have all kinds of reasons why I don't work with people. I generally only work with people that I really like. A and what my position on is it, on certain person may be totally different from yours. So the general way that we approach it is, is that we don't really make decisions on behalf of people. We don't create a scoring system. We present you with the facts and the evidence and say, hey, we happen to notice that there's 82 pictures with him with you know, Rolexes and various watches, but you can make your own judgment uh, from that um, as to whether or not, I'm not telling you what they're worth, how much, you know, uh, or what that even means, but you may decide that that's, that's something that you wouldn't do. Um, you know, I've had people who have in, lied about their degrees, who have filled out a form that said, I've never been arrested for anything and had multiple DWIs. We had a guy that we did work on a couple of years ago that had something like six or seven DWIs over an eight or nine year period. And to me, that was a clear sign of alcoholism and trouble. Uh, there was nothing else in his background that was really scary. But I guess, you know, if you're having hiring that person to drive your kid to school, <laughs> that probably would be a big problem. Um, but whether or not the guy is a genius and can invest in something like, listen, uh, my my level of what I would invest with them or not is is probably much higher. Like I I work too hard for my money to give it to somebody who's going to drink it away. Um, but who's to say it is for somebody else? Um, you know, we've had I, there's there's tons of stories that I can. Um, of course, none of them are popping to my head where, um, you know, it's just cases where I'm not the judge and jury. I am a fact finder. I present the information and whether or not, you know, you want to make a decision based on that, that is, that's up to you. And, and the perfect example is, you know, Bernie Madoff is somebody that we all know and, and love to a certain extent from in the white collar world. But, um, you know, there weren't a whole lot of huge red flags with Bernie Madoff. You know, there was Harry Markopoulos is somebody who's a guy who's up in Boston who was screaming to the SEC for years upon years upon years that there's something wrong here. There's something wrong here. I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong here. There's no way that it, this could happen. And if you really go back and look at it, there was a couple sort of red flagish things. You know, he used an, an accountant who was in a strip mall in Rockland County, uh, you know, a two-person accounting firm who was running like a $60 billion fund, which is a major red flag. Um, but 
I'm not going to tell you, Kelly, I'm not going to tell you, you cannot invest with this guy because he's got a two-person accounting firm. That's a red flag to me, and I'll point out that information to you, but whether or not you choose to pursue it, that's, that's your own business. <laughs> well, and Jeff, one thing that um, I, you've probably seen this, Brian, is sometimes people come to us and they're, they just want us to validate what they sense or feel. So whether, you know, all of a sudden we find the smoking gun that, yes, they were sued before or they have an extra family that, you know, isn't aware of, sometimes they just want to come and I don't want to say they're going to do one of two things. They're going to kind of agree and go, oh, thank God you found that or, oh, yeah, I already knew about that. I'm going to invest with them anyway. So um, while we provide, I think, a lot of value and it's objective and as certified fraud examiners, we actually have a code of ethics that we don't declare guilt. Like if I were to go and say that someone stole, no, I don't do that. I say the money was here and it went to the suspect's bank account. It's up to you to decide if it was stolen. Like I keep my personal opinion to myself and it's part of our you know, code of ethics. But a lot of times people want us to kind of, um, you know, I'm going to say validate their opinion. Look at Theranos. Theranos and Madoff are really good examples. The exclusivity. There was, you know, there's a clip because I do a course on fraud and pop culture of Bernie Madoff. And he's just goading this guy to up the money that he has to invest to be part of this super secret club. And then, you know, Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos, I'm going to say, you know, no offense to the audience out there. She went after old white guys who thought she was cute and didn't do due diligence. And it's like, oh, did you get in on that deal? There's this, when you get to that strata of society where it's a little bit of clown money, as I call it, Mm. it's kind of being part of the club to say, oh, yeah, I'm in with Madoff or, oh, I got in with Theranos. And I mean, we could show them all day long, but sometimes they're just going to do what they're going to do. Yeah. I thought of one of those stories now that that Kelly was mentioning it. Um, One of the stories that um, is from Nicholas Cosmo, I forgot the name of the fund that he was part of, but it was in Long Island. It was around the same time as Bernie Madoff and a family member actually who lived on Long Island and a, a number of sort of working class people had invested with Nicholas Cosmo. And I think he had raised something like 400 something million dollars. Um, at some point, he was guaranteeing 15% returns as sort of the normal Ponzi scheme, <laughs> pyramid scheme thing, guaranteeing 15% returns, checks were coming in regularly. Um, but sort of questions were, were sort of out there is like how he's making this all this money and how is it guaranteed and all this stuff. But people don't generally ask all that much questions when they're, you know, sort of getting their checks. So I, a family member said he, he, was, he was concerned enough that he asked me to look into it. So I looked into it and it turns out that Nicholas Cosmo had served jail time in the late 90s for stealing money like from a client. Um, and there were a, a number of other red flags, including, you know, he had sort of pumped up, he had, he had paid to have his company like rated in Inc. magazine and was, was, mm. was sort of pumping up this, who he was about this. Um, but the guy had served jail time for stealing from clients. And <laughs> I, I'm thinking like, oh my God, here's the home run. Like, here's, here's a perfect reason to take your money out and never look back. And he didn't. 
he kept it in. He's like, oh, I'm just going to leave it in. I, I didn't think, you know, he, he's admitted to it. We confronted him on it. He's now admitted to it. And, you know, he said it was all a mistake. And I said, okay. And within a year, it was a $450 million Ponzi scheme that had been, you know, a lot of working class people had, had lost a lot of money. So to your point before about, you know, the level at which some people are willing to sort of keep their money with somebody or to turn a blind eye or whatever the case is, I, the psychological part of it, I don't necessarily understand fully, um, <laughs> but it, it's fascinating nonetheless. So, Kelly, um, you've made your name um, in pink collar crime. So this, of course, was, isn't the full range of your, uh, of your experience, obviously, but this is something now that people know you as the pink collar crime lady, I guess they, they call you. Um, so what is it about women that is so intriguing, uh, women who commit crimes that's so intriguing? Um, I know there was a, a pink collar TV show for a while. Oh, um, don't waste eight hours of your life. Um, Marcia Clark got it wrong. That's why she won. Why she lost the OJ case. She doesn't do her research. But but it, but it feels like it feels like there are there are legitimate corners of all of this, and then what there is is kind of the sensationalism or the or or um um. Well, what, what, why don't we first go into what? what you find fascinating and why you've decided to have a specialty in, um, in pink collar crime. And then I'll, I'll ask a follow-up question. So I think pink collar crime found me. I was sitting at the sheriff's office one day and I realized all my suspects, but one were women. And then the other part was like, I mean, we've said it and Brian said it and I've said it, bad guys, bad guys, bad guys. We don't say bad checks or, you know, bad ladies. We just, so it's kind of, I'm going to say mind-blowing in a bad way when you see that nice woman, like I said, dropping her kids off at the minivan and she's like ripping off the soccer club. It's, we have this cognitive dissonance, like but her kids are so nice and her husband is really nice and they always bring cookies and, and yet you're like, but she's stealing. And so for me, I mean, I had dealt with, like I said, money launderers, drug dealers, pedophiles, and, um, you know, it's easy to say they're icky, like, ooh, they should go to prison. But what do you say about that woman who has done a really good job raising her children and maybe her spouse has left or she has a sick kid or a kid gets thrown, you know, in jail or something like that? Does it make them bad? Like when you're little or when you have children and you take them to the grocery store and you say, if you get separated from mommy, Go look for the nice lady. And if you see a mean bad guy, scream, yell, and run. Like, but again, dentists, three out of five dentists get ripped off. They get ripped off by that nice lady. So that my mind just went to like, wow, it can happen to anyone. And knock on wood, you know, I haven't had to make that type of decision. And I hope I would never have to. I, I have a colleague who's a CFE, CPA, CFF, and um, he doesn't like to watch or listen or take any training from someone who is, you know, a felon who's committed this. And I'm like, dude, you're missing understanding how and why. And, you know, 
And he's like, I would never cross the line. And I'm like, you got a kid, don't you? I don't know if you ever saw the movie Leverage, or not movie, it was the miniseries Leverage. Did you watch that, Brian? Mm-mm. Oh my gosh, it's so fascinating. So it's this guy, and it was filmed in Portland, so that's kind of why I like it. Timothy Hutton. He was. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, high-end insurance investigator, and it turns out his kid gets sick, has some type of cancer, mm-hmm. and the insurance company that he has literally recovered millions for, he goes to ask you know, to pay for this experimental treatment. And they say no. So he kind of becomes Robin Hood. We all have a price. I just, I don't think anyone doesn't have a price. Mine is not financial. It doesn't have to be a financial price. But I just saw people who, unfortunately, their price was pretty low. I have a, there's an investigator that I've worked with recently. And I think you're totally right. I think everybody's got a price. And I think most people's is financial. Kelly is a, an exception to that rule. But I think for <laughs> the, the joke that he would always say is like, I have a price, but nobody's ever offered me that price. <laughs> it was so outrageous. It was like, listen, for $100 million, I'd pretty much do that. <laughs> anything. <laughs> okay, who is that person, Brian? I bet I know him. <laughs> I'm not revealing that today. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Earlier, you mentioned uh, PPP loans, and you know I went to prison for SBA loan fraud. So I talk about it all the time. I talk, I talk about it in lectures. I talk about it online, um, and um, it's one of those topics um, that is comes around every once in a while. You know, it's not there's nothing sexy about the SBA or SBA loans. But after a disaster, there's a lot of government money. And um, we've ne- what we're going through now is completely unprecedented. There's never been this level of disaster funding in the history of the world, probably. So the numbers are staggering because there are trillions well there's at least a trillion dollars of loan money out there there are eight or nine million loans that are given so far and uh given out so far and the people who are in charge of uh of uh, of these loans the sba but also the uh you know congress the the enabling acts and things like that what they said in advance is we know that there will be a large percentage of fraud and fraudulent loan, either applications or misuse of the money. But that's a, that's a, uh, a risk that we're willing to take. We understand it um, because we need to push the money out there. We need to push it out fast. So even if that number is 10% and, when, and which they'll prosecute 10% of that, um, we're talking about a lot of money. So what's your experience with, um, with people who are now their businesses are about, are in the process of being crushed? Again, what we just talked about was what's your price? And they don't, one, there are people who are out and out are committing fraud, but then there are two people who are either embellishing or they don't even understand what the concept of fraud really is. They're, they're, 
they, they don't have their numbers together, at least with the speed in which, um, so they're estimating or they're, or they're, or they're putting a number out there that they, that they may honestly believe that their, their revenue was X, but the reality is, is that it wasn't even close to X. So what's, what's your experience with all of this? So there was, I love Reddit. Reddit is just a deep, dark hole that I can spend a lot of time in. And right when this initially happened, um, I went into the Reddit and I put in um, like PPP fraud. And oh my God, hours later. And then I talked to a colleague, uh, I'm going to say one of my felon friends. And um, it turns out his wife worked for a company that went to put money into a PPP fraud or to get loan money. And the same thing, he's like, you know, I want you to put the numbers together to show X because we were on this trajectory to X, but then COVID hit. And so the, and so luckily the woman said, Hey, why don't you talk to my husband? And um, my husband might give you some ideas here. And sure enough, her husband's like, you know, again, we have optimism bias. We don't ever think we're going to get cancer. We don't ever think we're going to get embezzled. You getting a $150,000 loan, you're like, I'm too little. No, like we catch low hanging fruit. The government catches low hanging fruit. You get the same statistic for Congress, for funding, for catching Pablo Escobar as you do for a guy selling a dime bag of heroin in Old Town. So who are you going to go after? And these people don't understand that. So like, yeah, there is going to be a lot of fraud and people are just, I remember the mortgage fraud crisis because I did a lot of work with mortgage fraud and I belong to a networking group and his mortgage broker shows up. He never came afterwards. I swear. I think I scared him away. Um, there was a lot of people who, you know, like in the big short, we got strippers buying five or six houses and, you know, how are they doing it? They think, I'll never get caught. I'm too little for the government to be bothered with. Well, I got a lot of little people who got bothered by the government. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then I'll, there's this, I, you know, it's, um, I'm too little or it's, I paid taxes my whole entire life. It's my turn. And there's a whole thing in criminology and psychology about, you know, the neutralization theories. So, yeah, I just, I, I think the SBA, if you want to be an investigator for the government, I think it's going to be a lot of work. Boom time. Yeah, boom time. Yeah. Yeah. For somebody who applied for a PP loan, uh, th- there was just so much, you know, as you mentioned, there was just, people wanted to get, the government wanted to get money out to these businesses as quickly as possible. There was very little oversight, very little regulation, very little double checking of anything. <laughs> Uh, and as I'm going through the process myself, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this is going to be a disaster. So I think there's obviously a subset of people who are committing out and out, outright fraud. I mean, there's, there's plenty of them out there. You can read stories about them every day. And there's a subset of people that, you know, are in sort of that their lives are turned upside down, devastating. Like, I hope I can get this back. I don't know. Maybe I'll fudge it a little bit or, you know, I, I pay taxes all these years. You know, I deserve this or whatever the case may be. I need to feed my family. Um, and, you know, sometimes it might have worked out and sometimes it didn't. But I, I think this, in this particular case, this was just something that was 
so ripe for fraud and 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 whatever that you know underwriting that they did that they said um you know maybe 10 percent or whatever i don't know if that was a real number jeff that you mentioned but i i'm fairly certain there was a infinitely more than that oh yeah uh, <laughs> for sure <laughs> the people that really needed it i mean listen there was there was companies at the beginning that were you know this was meant to be for small businesses who didn't have access to public funds and they were public companies that were you know applying for this mm -hmm. and and they got caught and and sort of trash in the media and they wound up giving it back so and you know tom brady's uh you know business applied for a ppp loan which most people have you know no sympathy for whatsoever <laughs> since he makes tons of millions of dollars um you know so i listen it was just something that was just so unbelievably ripe for fraud the um the concept of low hanging fruit i think it's really important because um as uh, as people who are <clears throat> in the sector um um we we go we go after the we go after the easy ones um or or at least um uh, systemically we go after the easy ones so 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 he, here here's an example that i'd like you to react to because people tend to think that here's the moment in time and here's the crisis and whatever and i can justify whatever i need to do but the reality is is that the statutes statutes of limitations are long and the world shifts and now um for example <clears throat> under uh, under the current administration, they could have a much more prosecutorial bent. And now it's two or three years down the line, and there are um, young uh, assistant U.S. attorneys um, in their offices who are now um, um, who are now ambitious, and their offices have uh, um, they got a memo maybe from the way top down or maybe it's uh, regional and saying okay we're going to go after all of these uh these uh, ppp loans from three years ago and so you could just be kind of sitting at your pizzeria or wherever you are uh, flipping pizzas and then as uh, happened to your dad kelly a uh, an fbi agent walks in or someone from from a, a government agency that you never even heard of. It could be the FDIC, it could be the SEC, if there's a public, and it might not even be something that you did. They may have found out that your accountant has fudged hundreds of, of, uh, of reports or that your bank had poor underwriting. And so they're, they're doing a, they're doing a, um, uh, they're doing, they're taking samples from the bank. So what was it post mortgage crisis? What was the time lag? And, and do you have any sense about how close to the statute of limitations there are? I mean, do people, are their investigations complete or are they, or, or are they, what, what are they looking for? I worked at this case kind of haunts me still. Um, I worked for a, uh, or, you know, I took a gig for a financial institution and, um, they had found one of their clients, customers had, um, done a mortgage and it seemed that they had 
falsified it because that house that was their primary residence and it was underwritten as a primary residence quickly was put up as a rental and they bought a different house. Well, they brought me in and I went and I interviewed this young family. And do I think the mortgage broker helped them facilitate this? But they had no idea. So I go and I interview the mortgage broker upside down and sideways. He's not admitting to anything because it's his livelihood. And I go and interview the husband and wife and they're freaked out. They're in their early thirties. They think, you know, they have no idea. So I come back to the board of directors and the CEO and I'm like, by law, you can file a SAR, a suspicious activity report. Mm -hmm. I will tell you that you may ruin this young family's life forever. And they didn't understand. I'm like, because it's low hanging fruit. And maybe the FBI just, you get a hungry agent goes, well, this is mortgage fraud. And I, like this, it was a gray area and I don't know what they ever did. Um, but it was one of those things where like they were somewhat complicit, but not really. And by law, the, the bank could have filed it, but I think they could have easily justified not filing it. And they didn't, they're like, they just kept saying, by law, we have to do it. And I'm like, but do you understand what could happen? And, mm -hmm. and, and you know, I, I have a feeling they filed it and just, I've never seen the family, the husband be arrested. So hopefully it went fine. But that's one of those things that I had to bring to the board's attention. Like, you don't know what filing this SAR can or cannot do mm -hmm. for a person. I, I Listen, I think the bottom line with what we were just talking about is that Investigations are long and messy, uh, and they take lots of time and effort and 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 resources. Uh, and, and the bottom line is that you know if it's the unless you run into the wrong private party, the government's not going to be prosecuting a lot of these things because it's just not big enough. You know, some small local uh, charity that you know somebody stole thirty thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars from. Nobody's coming after that person. Unless you piss off the wrong person, unless it's somebody, you know, in many cases, some of these small charities or local sports booster clubs or whatever, will just sweep it under the rug. Nobody will ever hear about it because they don't want to go through the time and the effort to actually dig it up and figure it out. They'll either get rid of the person, they'll quietly go away, um, or, you know, or it'll just go on forever. So I think, you know. When we talk, when I hear the word low hanging fruit, you know, it, it, it totally makes sense to me in terms of not all these cases are going to be prosecuted. Not everybody's going to be going out. They want to make examples of certain people and they're going to put, you know, some of these big PPP frauds, what we were just talking about, are going to be in the news of the one, the guys that got the $2 million loan who had zero employees and they bought Bentleys and cars and those kind of things. They're going to make examples of those people and hopefully, you know, scare the bejesus out of the rest of the people. Um, but whether or not they're really going to prosecute these things, it's really unlikely. And I think that's, it's, there's, there's two things from that. Um, I think one is that people, I think, can think they can get away with it for sure, which I believe is 100% true. Um, but also it's something we haven't touched upon. And I've heard this from other white collar criminals. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, Jeff, is that mm -hmm. some of them say it's, it's, it was worth it. I've heard two people that have told me that they, these are guys that spent time in jail, 
who lived a good life for a couple of years and made, you know, spent millions of dollars and whatever the case may be, spent a couple of years in jail. And they said, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it because the, the, the punishment doesn't always fit the crime. And you do have this sort of stain on your life forever. But for some people, they would do it all over again. And I'm curious what, what you, what you think about that, Jeff. What a great question. Um, I don't think it's worth it. No matter what, I don't think it's worth it. I think that, I think that smart, talented people um, can make money without having to steal it. And if you have to steal it, then maybe you're not so smart or talented. And um, I've had to come to terms with that. Um, I think that inherent in that question is two things. Is one, are, is the, if, if we're balancing risk and return, not everybody's in a position where the return is so great that it might outweigh the risk. Now, I lived in, in Rye, New York, in Greenwich, Connecticut, and it would probably be difficult to stand in front of a, of the entry class of one of these big finance companies and 500 or a thousand people in the room. And these people, they, the, the people in that room, they have dreams of making hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know what you could do to, if, if you just stood in front of them and said, listen, look around the room and two or 3% of you are going to be prosecuted in the next five years. So just know that you might be one of them and it might have nothing to do with what you think it's going to have to do with. It might be the guy sitting next to you is doing something and that leads them to you. You know, you can, you, you can't outsmart anybody. Um, so that's my first answer. The second answer is, is that, um, very few people do these things alone. So, um, the, the conspiracy issues and the whistleblower issues, uh, um, I'm, I'm thinking that it's possible that whistleblowing is going to become a cottage industry. People are out of work. Just start, you don't have money. You start blowing the whistle. And, um, I think the government has made it, um, a lucrative undertaking or there's, they're, they're, they're trying to. So, um, I don't really know where that's going to stand, but it, um, I hope that's a complete answer. I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question. Glad I asked it. Mm -hmm. I listen, it's always been something that's fascinated me for, for many years. And it's the, the two white collar criminals that I've spoken to directly have both said the same thing, uh, whether or not they continue to sort of, toe that line and what they're, what they're doing now. I don't, I don't know if you would have your answer would be the same as, as, as everybody else's. So. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So we're, we're running out of time here. Um, why, why don't we just um, wrap up with each of you um, taking a, a minute or two and um, what's, what's the big takeaway here? Because you spend a lot of time in this sector. Um, what's the takeaway that, you know, given that our audience is generally uh, people who've committed crimes, their families, professionals uh, surrounding it. Um, what, what's the big takeaway? What do you want? What do you want people to know about 
investigators and investigating and 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 so that they can kind of pay attention to what you do and why you do it and then please give your contact information well, I'll start. So one of the things is um, I've done prosecution work and I've done defense work. And I will say that I love the defense work. I, you know, um, there is nothing worse than uh, taking your liberty away. And I hate to say it, there's bad work in any industry and that includes law enforcement. And usually it's like overreaching or overcharging. Um, so I love the defense work because it's, and you know, the cheesy term holistic, we get a look at the whole person. We get a look at the, you know, the circumstances around it. I also think that the, both the suspects and the victims that I've worked with, and maybe you can say something to this, Jeff, it's, we never want a fraud to happen, but it has changed their life. And I'm going to say sometimes, most of the time for the better. Something really good is going to come out of it. I had a victim, half a million dollar loss, um, needed a loan, went to one of their customers. The customer is a billionaire and he, they had to be fully transparent and he felt for them because he goes, this happened to me a long time ago. Mm. This, them reaching out to him, they've gotten more business than they ever knew what to do with. So, as painful as it was when they went to someone and it turns out that they had this, um, he fully supported them. Mm. So whether you're a suspect or a victim, it's not the end of the world. Like you, you've made, you know, I'm going to say a much better career by doing what you do. So investigators, I think, I think we're helpers. We're kind of like, a, we're a little bit of, I'm going to say financial and open source intelligence, social workers. I don't know. What do you think about that, Brian? Interesting way of putting it. I, I really so John Gill, who's a member of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, he said something to me when I I I, I am a certified fraud examiner. I think Kelly is too. Yeah. No, Kelly. Um, so I took a course um, many years ago, and John was was teaching the course, and he said something that has stuck with me forever. And he said that fraud changes. Uh, fraud doesn't go away; it just changes. So we've talked about things that have been going on in terms of white collar fraud for dozens of years, whether it's mortgage fraud, whether it's Ponzi schemes, which were all the rage in a couple of years ago and are still the rage. And now it's PPP fraud, mortgage fraud, whatever the case may be, it just continues to evolve. And, and, and what is fascinating for me as an investigator and as somebody who's just fascinated by life, um, it's just figuring out where that next fraud is going to be and how it's going to change and, and how it's going to sort of manifest itself. Listen, fraud is inevitable. There's, there's no way around it. People are going to take advantage of things. I, I truly feel for the people um, who really get caught up in something. I feel horrible for victims of these white collar fraud because I think, you know, sure. one of the things that gets lost is that, you know, they, a lot of people like to say that white collar fraud is a, is a victimless crime. Mm -hmm. People lose their life savings, you know, and, and people have had horror stories about these things yeah um and, and it's something that i'm extraordinarily passionate about because you know i know how you know people have you know it it to to lose your life saving something and somebody that you thought was was real uh, that you knew that you whatever the case may be um i think it's really sad and you know it's one of the advantages as an investigator that i have is that i have a chance to sort of remove myself from everything 
Um, I'm looking at it from a totally clean slate. And most of the time people come to me and they already have this sort of opinions and thoughts and all these perceptions and, and, you know, they're, they've inputted a lot of their, their life into this story. Um, but I can look at it from a very, from a blank slate and I can look at it from a very honest opinion. Um, so, you know, I think one thing that I wouldn't lose sight of in this whole thing is, is the victims. And, and those are people that I really, you know, have some significant sorrow for. And the victims come in all different shapes and sizes. There's uh, children and spouses and family members and communities that have put their trust in people and can all come crumbling, da crumbling down and uh, this cascading mistrust of people and of the system that is supposed to be, well, you would think that, um, that um, we're put on this planet to help one another. And when that becomes eroded, uh, it, it could be very difficult. Well, look, thank you both. Um, why don't you just quickly just uh, give your contact information? We'll have it all in the show notes as well. You can find me at pinkcollarcrime.com or just kellypaxton.com. Lovely. And I'm at diligentiagroup.com, D-I-L-I-G-E-N-T-I-A group.com. And I am on every social media platform that you can possibly think of, except Clubhouse. I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, I'm on Clubhouse now. Oh, I'm there. I'm an um, Android person, so I guess I'm out of the loop. Thank you both so much. And um, blessings to you both. Thank you so much for being on the, pro on the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.